0: Would you turn with me to Mark chapter 10. And as you are, let me share what an absolute privilege and joy it is to come among you this week and to serve you the Word of God. Paul said we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. And that's how I come among you, as your bondservant, For the sake of our Lord and Savior. Amen? Amen. What a blessing to my soul to serve you. We want to begin this morning at the beginning in Mark chapter 10 and verses 17 through 22, which we'll read in just a moment. If I walked pew to pew in the average Baptist church in the south at this time and asked this question... What is eternal life? I'm certain I'd get some interesting answers. Some folks would say immediately, Well, that's going to heaven when you die. Uh, Well, that's icing on the cake, but that's not Jesus' definition of eternal life. Others would say, Well, that's walking on streets of gold, looking at gates of pearl, having my mansion over the hilltop, or a reunion with grandma. That's not Jesus' definition of eternal life. If anyone knows what eternal life is, the Lord Jesus should know. Amen? Amen. Since he's the author of eternal life, he says this in his great high priestly prayer, this is eternal life. That you may know the true and living God and Jesus Christ his son whom he has sent Notice that eternal life is not found in a place. It's not found in a plan. Eternal life is not found in a little formula. Eternal life is experienced and enjoyed through a supernatural entrance into a saving knowledge of and vital union with the Lord Jesus Christ. So that because of that saving knowledge, that living union, the Lord Jesus might become the supreme love of your life above all other people or things. He might be the sovereign king of your life. He might become the very center of your universe so that you might find your identity in him. Your significance in him. Salvation in him. But if a man, a woman, even sometimes a young person is going to enter into this saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus, then that person must come to the Jesus of the Gospels on his conditions. And here in Mark chapter 10, in verses 17 through 22, we see a man who comes running to Jesus. He falls on his knees before Jesus. He asks, how may I inherit, how may I obtain eternal life? And yet he walks away without eternal life because he was not willing to come to the Lord Jesus on his terms. Notice verse 17. Now as he, the Lord Jesus, was going out on the road One came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I might inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, One thing you lack. Go your way. Sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come Take up the cross and follow me, but he was sad at this word, and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, if you notice with me the man in this message, he was a man of position we we call him the rich young ruler. And the Greek word there for ruler is not just any kind of ruler. He was a religious ruler. And more than likely, he was a lay leader at the synagogue. In other words, this was a man of religious affiliation, religious attendance, and religious activity. But a person can be a man or woman of religious affiliation, religious attendance, and be even involved in religious activity and be without a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a man of position. Not only that, he was a man of possessions. We call him the rich young ruler. Verse 22 says he had great Possessions. He was a wealthy man. In other words, he had all of his needs met and beyond his needs. If you would have traveled with me 200 times outside of our nation, in 20 different nations, 38 of those, in communist Cuba, the average income in communist Cuba is the equivalent of 15 U.S. dollars per month. Everyone in this room is wealthy, but riches do not profit in the day of wrath. He he was a man of position, a man of possessions, but he was a man with a great problem. Obviously, there was a gnawing void and emptiness within his soul because he was without eternal life. Augustine said, God has made us for himself, and our souls are restless until they find their rest in him. And this man's soul was restless, there was an emptiness, a void, and it sent him running to Jesus. So that leads us to the manner in which this man came. He he came urgently. Second half of verse 17 says he was running. His lack of assurance about his eternal destination, the destination of his soul, gave him an urgency within his being. So he saw an opportunity to speak to the Lord Jesus. He did not procrastinate. He did not delay. He did not debate. He came urgently to Jesus. Not only that, he came reverently. He came running and fell on his knees. Now, certainly there's a great crowd following Jesus. The Lord's out on the open road. Maybe some of this man's friends, relatives, acquaintances. acquaintances. Some of the uh, attenders at the synagogue may be in the crowd. But listen, he doesn't care what anybody else thinks. He is willing to pull down the mask and at least admit there's something missing. Hey, he comes urgently, he comes reverently, not only that, he comes with the right question. How may I obtain, how may I inherit eternal life? He's concerned about eternal things. You know, that's half the battle when I'm attempting to witness to most. Americans, because most Americans are so distracted by the temporary trinkets and amusements and the noise and the clutter of this world that they are dangerously neglectful when it comes to the condition of their soul, the need of their soul, the destination of their never dying soul. Oh, but this man, he knew he was going to spend eternity either in heaven or in hell, and he was deeply concerned about the destination of his soul. He came with the right question. Not only that, he came to the right person, didn't he? He came to the one who has the words of eternal life. He came to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And yet, tragically, verse 22 says he walks away without eternal life, without the salvation of his soul. He walks away without entering into a saving knowledge of Jesus. It's absolutely stunning, isn't it? And do you notice how the Lord responds to him? Oh, the Lord did not respond with a little formula like so many preachers would today. Why doesn't Jesus tell him? I mean, he's come running. He says, how can I have eternal life? Why doesn't the Lord Jesus Christ tell him that salvation is as simple and easy as ABC? No, Jesus never said that. He never told anyone that. As a matter of fact, if you keep reading in the text, the Lord Jesus says, with men this is impossible. He didn't say it's simple. He didn't say it's easy. He said it's humanly impossible with man, but not with God. Uh, The man comes running, he comes kneeling. Why doesn't Jesus tell him, well, just repeat this prayer with me? Have you ever noticed Jesus never asked anyone to repeat a prayer with him? Have you ever noticed Jesus never commanded us to ask people to repeat prayers? And the apostles and the disciples throughout the book of Acts never ask anyone to repeat or parrot a prayer. That was invented by R, R. A Tory at the turn of the last century. It didn't exist in the first 1900 centuries of Christianity. Nobody's saved by relying on the efficacy of a repeated prayer. Why do, I mean, the guy's running, he comes kneeling, he says, how can I have eternal life? Why doesn't the Lord Jesus say, well, just invite me into your heart? Jesus never asked anyone to invite him into their heart. Mark 1 in verse 15, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, invite Jesus into your heart. Is that what your Bible says? No, it says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Oh, this guy's come running, he's come kneeling. He says, How can I have eternal life? Why doesn't God the Son simply say, just accept me as your personal Savior? Have you never have you ever noticed Jesus never asked anyone? To accept Him as their personal Savior? For the issue is never will you accept Him? The eternal issue is will Jesus accept you? And He will only accept you when you come to Him on His. Conditions. Oh, instead of all these man-made concoctions and invitations, the Lord Jesus says, you want eternal life? Go your way, sell whatever you have, give it to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. Now, why does Jesus hold the term so high that they appear to be humanly impossible to meet are the terms different today are the conditions different today or have we so watered down the conditions that we're doing mostly doing nothing but populating the broad road of religious deception What are Jesus' terms that he confronts this young man with, that he confronts everyone in this room with, and have you come to this Jesus on his conditions? What are the issues? Well, first of all, he confronts this young man with the fact that he has a fallen character. Did you see that in verse 17? He, calls, he says, good master, good teacher. What shall I do that I might inherit eternal life? Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except one, and that is God. Now, no one ever referred to a rabbi, a teacher, as being good to the core. That's the Greek word here. The word means essentially good to the core. And no one is essentially, morally, perfectly good to the core except one, and that is God. Why are you calling me, Jesus says, essentially good to the core? Could it be that the Lord Jesus was confronting this man with the fact that Jesus is God the Son? Thus, he is essentially morally perfectly good to the core. Uh, This rich young ruler did not realize who was gazing into his soul. He did not realize that he was face to face with Emmanuel, with the great I Am, with God with us. And God the Son was confronting him and he's confronting us with the fact that only God is Is uniquely and absolutely good to the core. A young man, no one is good but one, and that's God. And young man, that includes you. You are not essentially good to the core, young man. As a matter of fact, you are bad to the core. And now this leader in the synagogue should have known Jeremiah 17, 9, which speaks of the unconverted heart, the heart that's only been born once, which God says about the human heart that's unconverted. The human heart is deceitful above all things and what? Desperately wicked. If we could take that Hebrew word and bring it into today's terminology, the word would be hopelessly sinful. Imagine you're in the ICU waiting room with your family and your loved one is in ICU. The specialist comes out to meet with the family and the specialist says to you and your family, unless a miracle occurs, the case is hopeless. That's the picture. The unconverted, unregenerate heart is hopelessly wicked. This young man was thinking too highly of himself, and he was not thinking highly enough of the pristine holiness and inflexible justice. Of God, And if we're left to ourselves without the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit and conviction and contrition, you and I will think too highly of ourselves and not highly enough of God. And therefore, we will tend to compare ourselves to other sinners instead of comparing ourselves to the thrice holy God. If you don't have a right view of the pristine holiness and inflexible justice of God, you will not have a right view of yourself in your own hopeless sinfulness. Thus, you'll not have a right view of your fallen character. And you'll respond like a young university student uh, uh, did when I was witnessing to him. He said this to me. He said, Mr. Lacey, I may be a sinner, but I'm a good sinner. I said, young man, let's use our imagination. We go out into your backyard and we're digging around in the dirt, in the mud, and we come up on about 100 worms squirming around there. But there's one worm amidst those squirming worms who is a standing worm. And not only can this worm stand, he's a speaking worm. And we overhear him speaking with himself. And he's looking down at those other 99 worms. And he's saying, you know something? I may be a worm, but I'm a pretty good worm compared to those other worms. I said, young man, one worm compared to another worm is still a worm. And one sinner compared to another sinner is still a sinner. Have you ever seen yourself with a bad heart before the pristine holiness of God? Are you saying, Brother Ed, no one is good enough, no one is moral enough, no one is religious enough to escape the eternal wrath of God in hell and enter into the presence of God in heaven in and of themselves? That is precisely what I'm saying. Because what is Jesus' standard of righteousness that you must have? Well, he gives it to us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew five forty eight: Be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. God's requirement for escaping the eternal wrath of God and entering into the presence of God is that you must have a righteousness that is precisely equivalent to the righteousness of God. Now that presents a terrible problem because there is none righteous. No, not one. As a matter of fact, the best of your moral performance and my moral performance that we can offer to God in and of ourselves, God says your righteousnesses are as filthy rags to a holy God. Notice he did not say your sins are as filthy rags. He says your righteousnesses are as the used rags of a leper. Uh, That's one of the pictures of filthy rags. Before the pristine holiness of God. What are you saying, Brother Ed? No one will enter into a saving knowledge of Jesus until they come to a true knowledge of themselves. In their bad heart. Has your heart ever been pierced over the fact that you have a hopelessly self-centered, sinful heart? Now you may be thinking, who in the world does this guy think he's talking to this morning? This is First Baptist Jonesboro, Louisiana. Uh, Jackson Parish Jail is down the street away. That's where you need to be with this message this morning. Oh. That's what you're thinking. You're the person I'm speaking to. You have a bad heart and you haven't even seen it yet. You can't get saved till you get lost. Now notice Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, not only do you have a fallen character, but you've proved it in the fact that you've failed the commandments. He says, how can I have eternal life? And in verse 19... Jesus begins to quote the second half of the moral law of God. In the same encounter in the book of Matthew, and we hear it in verse 1917, 19, Matthew 19:17, Jesus says, "If you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. What? Keep the commandments. Nobody's ever kept the commandments except Him. The first and greatest commandment says you shall love the Lord your God with 100% of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. There's not a person in this room who has obeyed that commandment for one moment. We've all shattered that first and greatest commandment. And what is Jesus doing here? This young man comes running. He comes kneeling. He asks about eternal life. He comes to the right person. And Jesus confronts him with the second half of the moral law of God. Why? No one will enter into a saving knowledge of Jesus until they first see themselves as a condemned criminal before the law of God in the courtroom of God. Have you ever seen your life? In light of the second half of the moral law of God, you should not commit adultery. Oh, but if you look after a man or a woman for that matter, you've already committed adultery. If you look with lust in your heart. Uh, You shall not murder. Oh, but anger without a righteous cause or bitterness or unforgiveness or holding a grudge is the same heart attitude as murder. Uh, Do not steal. When you were a child, teenager, even adult, ever stole even the smallest thing that didn't belong to you, no matter the value of the item? Ever steal some time at work? or school, should have been paying attention, should have been working, but you weren't. You were stealing the time. You should not bear false witness. Who would stand up and say, I never told a lie in my life, even a little white lie? Gave a false impression of myself. How many lies must a person tell to become a liar from God's viewpoint? All liars will have their part in the lake of fire which burns forever. Oh, I'll move on. Honor your father and your mother. Who would stand up and say, This morning I perfectly honored and obeyed my parents throughout my childhood and teenage years, not only in actions and words, but in attitudes and motives. If you stood up and said that, you'd be breaking the previous commandment that I mentioned. Now, how many in this room... We've only, uh, I've only given you half the exam. <laughs> uh, how many in this room would say I've broken at least one of those commandments in my life? If you'd be honest and say that, would, would you raise your hand for a moment? If your hand's up, you're breaking one right. If your hand's not up, you're breaking one right now. And James 2.10 says "If we cut the whole law, the entire law, and offend at one point, we're guilty of shattering the entire law. It is as if God has given us a final examination. Those students I've been teaching at the University of Mobile for the last couple of months, they're about to get a final examination. And God has given you a final examination. It is the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments. And you can only get two grades on this examination. You receive an A if you've perfectly obeyed the Ten Commandments, 60 minutes, an hour, 24 hours a day, every day of your life. If you've done so, you receive an A. If you fail to do so, you receive an F. There are no Bs, no Cs, no Ds. God doesn't grade on the curve. Perfect obedience to the law, you receive an A. Breaking one law on one occasion you receive an F. Well, the exam papers have come back and you received an F. Oh, but Brother Ed, I heard that the first 29 years of your life, you were agnostic, argumentative, arrogant, rock and jazz fusion drummer. So apparently my F is better than your F, Brother Ed. Still an F. My F is almost a D. You're deceiving yourself. We've all received an F. And the scripture says "Accursed, condemned is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law. I'm asking you this morning, not if you've repeated a prayer or so-called accepted Jesus into your heart or accepted Jesus as your prayer. I'm not asking you that. I'm asking you, has your heart ever been pierced over the reality that you are a lawbreaker? against God and all of your sins have been committed against Him? Have you ever been prosecuted and convicted in the courtroom of God as a guilty, lost, condemned sinner? Has the iron hand of the moral law of God ever banged on your heart, awakening you to the reality that you are a condemned criminal? in the courtroom of God. I'm not asking you've given a superficial mental agreement to the fact that you admit you're a sinner. No. I'm asking you, has the Holy Spirit broke your heart, pierced your heart over the reality that you have a life of mountains of sins against God? Did you notice this man's response in verse 20? Master, good teacher, all these things I've observed from my youth. How how self-righteous he was. How self-deceived he was. He thought he had kept all the law when in reality he had shattered the entire law every single day of his life. He'd been breaking the first and greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Have no other gods before me. He had another God, didn't he? And what was his idol? What was his god? Yes, his possessions, his wealth, and the things uh, that money can buy. Uh, In fact, this young man was absolutely self-righteous. He did not even realize he'd been living a life of blasphemous idolatry against God by worshiping his wealth. And there's no doubt in my mind that there are people here of many different ages this morning who have never come to this Jesus on his terms, they've been living a life of blasphemous idolatry against God because God created you for him. Uh, He didn't create you to live a self-centered, self-directed, self-pleasing life with a little religion tacked on. He created you that you might enter into a saving, life-transforming knowledge of Him so that you might live a Jesus-centered, Jesus-directed, Jesus-pleasing life. And anything less is blasphemous idolatry against God. It is treason against the Lord who created you for himself. Oh, but notice verse 21. This is incredible. Jesus looking at him loved him. (laughs) Jesus Gazed into this bad heart and this bad record, this blasphemous idolater, and he loved him with a love of pity, a love of compassion. And the omniscient Lord Jesus Christ who sees everything, who knows everything, every idle word, every secret sin, He gazes into every self-centered ambition, attitude, affection, action. He sees all of the blasphemous idolatry in unconverted hearts. He's fully aware of it. And yet, He loves blasphemous idolaters. He so loves them that he left the glory of heaven, the perfection of heaven, the worship and service of the angels. He was born of the virgin Mary. He came to this earth and lived on this earth as the god man, fully god, fully man, and he lived a life that you can never live and I can never live. A perfectly righteous life. Jesus made an A. Every second of every moment of every hour of every day, he made an A. He perfectly obeyed the law that we have shattered. He perfectly loved God the Father with 100% of his heart, mind, soul, and strength every moment of every day. He perfectly loved God the Father, obeyed the Ten Commandments. He perfectly pleased God the Father. And then on the most important day of human history, He marched up to the cross of Calvary not as a victim of circumstances but as a voluntary sacrifice. No man takes my life from me. I lay it down. I will lift it up again. He bound himself to that cross with cords of love. Love for his father to fulfill this great salvation mission love for blasphemous idolaters like me and you. Oh, he went through all manner of physical suffering, that's true. But at midday, it became as the midnight blackness of darkness. And for the next three days, Hours, the sinless substitute received a full equivalent of the eternity of the wrath of God that you and I deserve to endure in hell forever. But God unleashed that full wrath on his sinless son. On behalf of and in the place of any sinner, And every sinner who will come to Jesus on his conditions. In the blackness of the darkness, God the Father made God the Son who knew no sin to be sin, to be the substitute recipient of that eternity of the holy wrath, the fiery fury of God. So that a sinner like me could become the righteousness of God in him. And in New Orleans, Louisiana in 1980, this former agnostic, argumentative rock and jazz drummer was graced with repentance and faith. And when I was graced with that repentance and faith, all of my mountains of sins were imputed to Jesus' account. Jesus' perfect righteousness imputed to my account. Jesus took all of my F's and gave me his A. Because he loves to save blasphemous idolaters. He looks into the heart of this man with a love of compassionate pity, but he loves him enough not to water down the message, not to dilute the message, not to distort the message. Jesus would never populate the wide gate of counterfeit conversion. He loves him enough to tell him the truth about authentic conversion. How this man can enter into the essence of eternal life. And what does he say? Two points and we close. First of all, number three, third point this morning, you must forsake your idol. That's what he told him. Notice verse 21, second half of the verse. Go your way, sell whatever you have, give it to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven. (laughs) A young man, if you're going to enter into eternal life, which is a saving knowledge of me, if you're going to escape the just wrath of God that abides over your life, you must smash your idol. You must repent of your Ways You must repudiate yourself and renounce your idol. In this man's case, you must turn from your green God. That's what he's saying. You cannot serve two masters. Young man, you cannot have it both ways. It's not enough, young man, to attempt to tack me onto your self-centered life. No, if I'm coming in, I'm coming in to be your life. I'm not coming in to be placed among your other gods. I'm only coming in to be the undisputed champion of your heart. You cannot enter into a saving knowledge of me unless you're willing to turn from your blasphemous idolatry. You cannot hold on to your idol and embrace me. If you're going to embrace me, who is eternal life, you must repent of your idolatry. And what is an idol? Well, it's whoever or whatever is number one in your life. If it's not Jesus, it's an idol whoever or whatever it is that gives you supreme significance in your life, that gives you the sense of who you really are. What are you chiefly building your identity on? The unconverted human heart, one man has said, is a factory of idols. Oh, but listen if you mainly find and build your identity on anyone or anything else except for the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a blasphemous idolater. That's what Jesus said. Now, it may be like this young man. Your your idol may be your wealth and the trinkets and toys that money can buy. With many people, it's amusements. It may be TV, movies, uh, music. It could be sports. And if it's sports, you're really grieving at the moment. It may be drugs with some people, alcohol. It may be sexual promiscuity. It may be shopping. It may be a lot of different things. For some people, their God is their family. Oh, yes, Jesus has never been the supreme one their spouse or their children or their grandchildren are the supreme love. Oh, it could be many different things. It could be a career, an occupation, climbing the ladder of success. And listen, a person can have all of these idols just like this man did while having a religious affiliation, religious attendance, even religious activity. But there'll be no saving knowledge of Jesus until a person realizes they they have been guilty of committing treason against God. What's the Lord saying to him and to us? You must repent. He is commanding him and us to repent. And if he doesn't repent, that lack of repentance will be the obstacle that condemns his soul to eternal hell. Because if a person lacks forsaking their idol, they lack repentance. If they lack repentance, they lack conversion. If they lack conversion, they lack eternal life. They lack salvation. This is why Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him repudiate himself, take up his cross and follow me, because if he keeps his life for himself, he's going to lose his soul. But if he loses his life for my sake and the Gospels, his soul will be what? Saved. This is why Peter stood up at Pentecost and said, repent and be converted and your sins will be blotted out. This is why Acts 17 says, God commands all men, all women, all young people, everywhere to Repent and pay careful attention. This is not a suggestion. This is not a nice idea. Oh, it would be nice if you'd repent. This is not an optional extra for some time down the road. No, this is a term, a command to enter through the narrow gate. And listen, it's, it's not an invitation, may I ask. My birthday was Friday, this past Friday. I wish you could have come to the party. We had a surprise party. If I'd have known you, I would have invited you to come. And you could say, well, maybe I can make it, maybe I can No, this is not an invitation, this is a command from the throne room of the universe and to disobey this command is to defy the king of kings and it has devastating consequences. You must, God commands you to turn from your idols, turn from your self-centered ways, turn from your sin. But there's a last term and we close. Saving faith. Where do you see saving faith? I see it here. Come. Take up the cross and follow me. There must be repentance toward God. There must be saving faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. In light of the reality that we all have a bad heart, we all have a bad record before God, in light of the reality that you have utterly shattered the moral law of God, which makes your life a living offense, To God, but in light of the truth of the glorious cross, that God the Father made God the Son who knew no sin to be sin on behalf of every repenting and believing sinner so that that sinner may become the righteousness of God in him. God not only commands you to repent, He commands you, as Paul did the jailer man, to believe on the Lord Jesus. And again, that's not an invitation. It's a command. Jailer man, I'm standing on behalf of God and I am commanding you to believe on a person who is Christ the Messiah, Jesus the Savior, one who is Lord. You want your F's forgiven? Do you want to be given his perfect A? then jailer man, you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And to this young man, Jesus is saying, give me your heart. Give me your life. Give me your obedience to my gospel terms. I'm offering myself to you as a savior to be trusted in and as a Lord to be surrendered to and followed. That's saving faith. It's far more than just giving a mere intellectual assent to a few minimized historical facts concerning Jesus and then parroting a prayer with those historical facts within them with no true commitment to the one who is Lord Jesus and Christ. No, this is a conversion Repentance and faith is a conversion from following your ways, your sins, your idols, and a turning to faith on him and follow him. F-A-I-T-H. Forsaking all, I take him. He came running. Fell on his knees. Came to the right person. Asked the right question. Life's most important question. I can just imagine him kneeling there, can't you? Jesus loves him too much to water down the message, give him a phony religious experience. Jesus tells him the truth because he is the truth. And he's kneeling there counting the cost of authentic conversion. And finally, he says no. No. I won't come on this, those terms. He went away grieved because of his great idol, He was not willing to give Jesus his sins to be forgiven. He was not willing to give Jesus his life to be governed. And unless something happened that we do not see in the scriptures, he's been in hell for almost 20 centuries. He'd have been happy to tack Jesus onto his life. But he was not willing for Jesus to be his life. I ask you today, in light of Jesus' words, not the TV preacher's words, not Brian's words, not my words, his words, (laughs) have you come to this Lord Jesus Christ on his terms? Well, this sounds like a work salvation, brother Ed. No, this is a salvation that works. Uh, This is bona fide conversion. Uh, Have you come on his terms? Have you entered into a saving knowledge Of Jesus. The young man, the rich young ruler, went away unconverted, still lost in his sins. If you've never obeyed these gospel commands, I plead with you today turn from your idol, whatever it is. Turn from the self-centered ways you've been living. And all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Maybe a thousand different ways. What makes it uh, sin is it's your way and not his way. He says turn from your ways, turn from your idols, turn from you being the center of your life and trust in him. Lay hold of him. Cling to who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished. Unless you repent, you will perish. And it's not enough to think about repenting. It's not enough to make plans to repent. It's not enough to pray about repenting. It's not enough to repeat a prayer from someone else about repenting. That's not it. He says you must repent. You must repent. And you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So what do I do? Take him at his word. Repent. And believe on